0: loud. <laughs> I'm to have to be careful. Um, I'm grateful for everybody who has stepped up to serve in Matters Music, uh, but um, Katie texted me late last night and told me she wasn't feeling uh, well, and we thought better safe than sorry, so uh, I stepped in uh, to help out today with uh, with music, and, uh, and I enjoy it uh, every once in a while. A couple things I want to let you know about before we we turn to the Lord in prayer is that today is one of our family fun days. And so if you have kids and they are in the kids' ministry, we would encourage you first to go to their class with them, second hour, and uh, just see what they're learning. Participate in, uh, in those uh, uh, both the large group interaction and their small group interactions and just uh, see what's being taught. Um, we want, uh, re- remember, we want... Um, the, the, the road that leads between children's ministry and the church to go both ways. It's not just about drawing kids into places where adults are, but drawing adults into places where kids are. So I would encourage you to go to see those, to check those out. But not just that, we also... Um, Today is is our uh, like spring outreach. When we do these family fun days, we do some kind of activity along with them, the carnival, the Great Trinity Light Fight, and then today we have an outreach opportunity. It kind of popped up last minute, uh, or re- really probably rather a community service opportunity, but um, we're going to meet at three o'clock. Is that right? We're going to meet here at three o'clock, and I'm I was gone all week. I was at the Denomination's annual conference this week, and when I left, there was like six people signed up for today's project, and how many do we have signed up today? About 60, and there's room for more. We need more people, so we're going to meet here at three. We're going to uh, make some posters for just the kids and the teachers who, uh, you know, if you know any teachers, they they report this being a, a tough year. And um, we're, we've, kinda, we've got stuff to build them like uh, a thing. We're going to give every staff member at Bernie Elementary a gift. We've got buckets that are going to have uh, playground toys and various things in it to put in the classrooms for the kids to be able to play with and enjoy. And we were planning on sidewalk chalk, but I'm not sure how sidewalk chalk and rain um, go together. Well, I am sure how they go together. Not well. So we're going to make posters and we're going to put posters up. And then once we're done at Bernie, we're going to come back here and have a barbecue, probably indoors, uh, depending on how the weather goes. But uh, uh, come join us. Uh, Let somebody know. Let Jennifer know. Let I know. If you want to come this afternoon, that way we can make sure we're prepared for everybody. But it's going to be a great time, just an an opportunity for us to love on our community. Let's, uh, Let's Well, let me read Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and then I will pray. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and said the following summary of the matter. Daniel answered and said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea. "'Different from one another. "'The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. "'I kept looking until its wings were plucked, "'and it was lifted up from the ground "'and made to stand on two feet like a man, "'and a heart of a man was given to it. "'And behold, another beast, a second one "'in the likeness of a bear, "'and it was raised up on one side, "'and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, "'and they said to it, "'Arise, devour much meat.' After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and and, uh, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of, Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow, and, his hair, uh, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking uh, until the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire." As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, and he came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the strange and wonderful portions of your word. And and much of your word is strange, we confess. But you have revealed to us wonderful things in it, namely yourself. Yourself. And here we see that you have revealed to us not only yourself in terms of history, but in terms of the past and the future. We thank you for your control, for your dominion. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see what's in your word, even in difficult passages like this that you would give us a clarity of mind to be able to understand what is here and and a softness of heart to be able to apply it, to be able to to trust you in difficult and confusing times. Lord, as we consider difficult and confusing times, we wanna pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, specifically, we wanna pray for their peace and their safety. But Lord, I I think we also need to pray for us because what we're seeing uh, amidst this situation there in the Ukraine is that the church is rising up, that they have, they have delighted to gather themselves, to sing your praise, to, to share the gospel to, to others, to love their enemies. And we might be tempted this morning, Lord, to think that they need our prayers, and, and maybe they do. But Lord, I think we need theirs. I think they are showing us what the church can be and should be. I think they might be showing us how we flit about and play at things of your kingdom while mostly pursuing things of this world. And so, Lord, as we see what's going on in Ukraine, maybe it should serve as an opportunity for us to confess our, our low thoughts of your church and your body, of the requirements to gather and to be present, to minister to one another, to be givers in your kingdom and not merely consumers, to be peacemakers to be prayerful, to be evangelistic. Lord, may we not get so prideful as to think that that the rest of the church and the rest of the world just needs us. And Lord, we confess our need to see what's going on there as well. And so we do pray for the church there. We pray that you would give it great boldness, great joy, great effectiveness, great witness But Lord, uh, keep us from the sin of praying those things for them while we neglect them ourselves. And thank you that when we do, you have given us Christ who who has forgiven every sin. But Lord, may may that claim on Christ and his death and his resurrection and his blood that covers all of our sins never be an excuse for apathy or sin. Or apathy which is sin. Would we all pray also right here for uh, the inner varsity Ministry at Whitman and and for uh, Donan and her ministry there. Lord, we thank you for just the requests that have been shared, Lord. We pray with her that there would be um, a staff member brought in to work full-time there. Lord, I pray that you might even find ways to, to move us out into ministry there, that we wouldn't just pray for them and send money to the school, but that we would see that we can get about the work of the ministry there in many ways as well. We pray for the younger students who are jumping in. Lord, that you would use Inner Varsity to, uh, to, to, to strengthen their faith. Lord, we pray that their small groups might be able to meet in person as restrictions are easing, or maybe they even are. Lord, whatever the case may be, Lord, we pray for the spread of the gospel there. Lord, uh, give us understanding again into your word that we might obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. It is confusing and scary times. Is it not. I think uh, uh, the book of Daniel opens in confusing and scary times. Uh, At least chapter 7 opens in confusing and scary times. Um, Certainly the fact that it is a confusing and maybe fearful time is true for the church, but, but I think one of the things we're seeing is it's true for the world as well. And and it's certainly true as Daniel opens up. Now, chapter 7 presents us with a flashback, because if we look in verse 1, we see in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We have not seen Belshazzar uh, since chapter 5. And by the end of chapter 6, we see that the Medes and the Persians have entered the equation. And so here in chapter 7, we rewind in history back to the reign of Belshazzar. And if you can remember from that time, Daniel is what I called sidelined. He's no longer in a prominent position. Uh, This is the first year of of the reign of Belshazzar, but by the time we get to chapter 5 and we see Belshazzar here, he doesn't even know who Daniel is anymore. And, and he has to be told of one of the the uh, the, the Hebrew um, slaves who used to be able to trans or, or to interpret dreams and, and visions. And then Belshazzar summons Daniel and, and has him interpret the writing on the. Oh, we get this uh, bit of rewind uh, here in the in Daniel chapter seven. And so Daniel is sidelined. Belshazzar doesn't know him. His, his prominent place in the culture, even if it's a wicked, evil culture under Nebuchadnezzar where his kingdom had been captured and hauled off, uh, he, 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 even in that cultural situation, he's no longer uh, carrying a primary position. And then there's idolatry all around. And not only is there idolatry all around, but as we remember in chapter 5, it is the very articles used for the worship of the one true and living God in the temple that were hauled back to Babylon that are being used for this idolatry. But here, what we see in Daniel chapter 7 is this glimpse into the future. And I think God gives Daniel this glimpse into the future for his encouragement. Tim Keller made a statement that that really stood out to me. He said the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And and I bet for most of us, either one or the other rings true. Some of you, your natural tendency might be, you know, I'm not that bad, and God does love me. And to that I would say, yes, you are, and yes, he does. And some of us, uh, we think, oh, you know, I'm awful. There's no way God can love me. To which I would respond, yes, you are, and yes, he does. But I think we see this similar kind of paradox in Daniel chapter 7, where Alistair Begg, who I'm going to quote again, uh, says that Daniel 7, quote, tells us that things are far worse than we thought and far better than we've ever hoped. Whatever you think about what's going on in the world right now, As you watch the news, as you see what's going on in the culture, as the agendas are pushed, whatever it is that's bothering you, I'm here to tell you today, things are going to get much worse. And simultaneously, things are much better than you ever imagined. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 is given to us for. There's a a shift in the book of Daniel here in chapter 7. Uh, Chapter 7 is this hinge into the second part. If you remember way back eight weeks ago, I told you the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic. That is the language of Babylon. The the last chapters, the last six chapters uh, in Daniel are written in Hebrew. Primarily in the first six chapters, Daniel speaks of uh, of himself in the third person, and we move into a situation now where Daniel primarily speaks of himself in the first person. We also see that the first six chapters of Daniel are historical, and and the, the next six chapters of Daniel all reach into the future. I feel like a little bit of a broken record when it comes to the book of Daniel because the thing I keep saying every single week is that this chapter, and if you ever want to explain the book of Daniel to anybody, here it is. It's really easy. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is always in control. I've been saying this every week. Kingdoms come and go, kings rise and fall, but God is always in control. It's the whole scope of the book of Daniel. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is in control. Well, it's really, really easy for us to look back in the past and say, oh man, I can see how God was in control, but the future I'm not so sure about. And so God, through Daniel, devotes as much time to the fact that he's in control of the future... As he does over the fact that he's in control of the past. And so here's Daniel, sidelined, removed from his home, forced to learn a new culture and language, to be a slave, to interpret dreams for wicked kings and to serve well in a world of wicked kingdoms. And I wonder if in this scary and confusing time of Daniel chapter 7, God isn't giving him these dreams and this glimpse glimpse into things to, to encourage him, to encourage him that it doesn't matter what the kingdoms of the world looks like. There is one eternal king and one eternal kingdom whose dominion will never fall. The genre of of writing that we're talking about here today as we move into Daniel chapter 7 and out of history and into prophecy is specifically apocalypse. This is apocalyptic literature. And in, in in English, the word apocalypse has become synonymous with this like doomsday, bad news, dystopian future, apocalypse now kind of reality. But that's not what the word means. The word itself, apocalypse, merely means revelation. If you uh, turn to, and don't, you don't need to turn there, but if you turn to the last book in your Bible, you'll find that it, it opens with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not, by the way, the book of revelations. It is the revelation. And, and in Greek, that, that book opens with the words apocalypsis, Iesu Christu." That is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, really, all apocalypse means is that it is future end times revelation. There's a lot of bad stuff connected with that, biblically. Uh, so we could, we could be tempted to think apocalypse is always bad, but it's not. And so uh, the, this apocalyptic genre, this future end times look at the things that will be is given to us always for two reasons. Number one is to, to describe something in the future that's hard to describe. This is why the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation are so difficult. The authors are grasping at words and images that they're being shown to describe something that they don't fully understand and comprehend. And so when we read it and we go, I don't fully understand what's going on here, I'm not sure we can always rectify that. To some degree, we just have to sit in that difficulty with the authors of Scripture So the first reason is to to describe something in the future that's hard to describe. The second reason authors uh, employ apocalyptic and that God really gives us these apocalyptic visions is to shock the reader. This is to be a shocking experience for us. And so when we read this and we go, this is weird and terrifying, well, then we, we, we might be getting things right. In order to understand how to use apocalyptic literature, though, and I know we're getting a little technical here. Bear with me. I'll move fast. We'll get back to what's written here. We have to play by the rules. Because there's some rules that apply to apocalyptic literature that aren't always the same for every others. And I don't want to give them all to us, but I'm going to give us two rules today that we might help, uh, that might help us understand Daniel chapter 7. Number one, apocalypse isn't for the future. It's for now. Wait a minute, Logan, you just told me it's about the future. Yes, it's about the future, but it's not for the future. Apocalyptic literature, the, book of, the second half of the book of Daniel and the Book of Revelation is given to us so that we might be encouraged now. I, 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 think, I think the second half of Daniel, uh, speaking of this shocking experience, I think the second half of the book of Daniel and, and the Book of Revelation are given for two reasons: to comfort saints and to terrify sinners. And so we can see these shocking pictures. But that comfort is not some future thing. Oh, God's going to comfort me someday. No, he's giving us the events that are going to take place so that we can be comforted now. And if the theme of the book of Daniel is kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is always in control, Revelation is even easier to explain. What? Revelation is easy to explain? How can that be, Logan? You just told me it's a complicated book. It is a complicated book, but here's Revelation in two words. God wins. That's it. And if there's not comfort in that, that God is in control in the past, and God is in control in the future, and no matter what happens and how bad things get from our perspective, God wins, there's great comfort. But that comfort is for now. One of the beautiful things about this is there's a lot of different interpretations about how the timing of things in the book of Daniel and even in the book of Revelation line out. But you know what's common to every different view on the Book of Revelation among Orthodox Christianity? They all come to the conclusion that God wins, and so in that we can all agree and we can all uh, have unity. So the first uh, th- uh, rule is that though Apocalypse speaks of the future, it is for our encouragement in the present. And secondly, this is a rule specifically to Old Testament Apocalypse, and so primarily uh, portions of Ezekiel and here in Daniel, Old Testament uh, apocalypse does not account for the church. Old Testament apocalypse does not account for the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, and for Paul, a mystery is always something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. You can comb Genesis through, uh, through Malachi all you want. And you will see clearly that salvation is for all, that, 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 that God was going to bless the whole world through Abraham, but you will not see the church, that is Jew and Gentile alike, being reconciled to God through Christ into one new man called the church. And so Old Testament apocalyptic literature can't count for that. Well, why is that important? It's important as we look at the book of Daniel, and, and if you're a little lost here, just bear with me a li- one more moment because there are some who aren't, and we'll move along. But, but when, one of the things we see is that the book of Daniel can't distinguish between the first Rome that ruled when Jesus was alive on earth and the revised Rome that we're told will be established in the book of Revelation. There, there's this pause in this Roman empire that we'll see described today that we call the church age. And we're living in that time now. And so Daniel has a hard time, from our perspective, distinguishing from things that have already happened and some things that are yet to happen. He just saw them lumped together. But for us, some of the prophecies of Daniel are yet to be And some of them have already been. Let's turn our attention now to the book of Daniel. And I want us to see how things will be worse than we think and how things are far better than we had ever hoped. Number one, we're going to see a revealing dream. A revealing dream. Verses uh, 1 through 8. Let's just work our way through these. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... So we're we're back to Babylon now. Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and said the following summary of the matter. Daniel answered and said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Wind in this day and age on the sea was dangerous. It stirred up storms, it could stir them up fast, and that was perilous. We're we're being presented with a dangerous picture here, the great sea being the Mediterranean, the largest sea body around them at that time, and so the wind is stirring up the sea and four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Now, this, uh, this is representative of Babylon, the reigning kingdom, as Daniel uh, uh, has this vision. There were lions on the gates outside of the city in Babylon, and the wings of an eagle give us this, this incredibly swift picture uh, of of the ability of Babylon to move and to take over the world. This shouldn't catch us by surprise. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk all use similar imagery for Babylon. And so this is Daniel's current situation. Babylon, represented by the lion and with the wings of an eagle, uh, is coming up out of the sea. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and had the heart of a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. This is probably representative of Nebuchadnezzar, who was by far the most fierce uh, and long and reigning and and the king who pushed that kingdom out the furthest, and we've seen so much of who he is in the opening chapters. And so this first beast, this first kingdom that comes up out of the water is Babylon. Next, Verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one in the likeness of a bear. This is the Medo-Persian army that we or, or kingdom that we encountered in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, it, it's, uh, we see it starts out with, the, the, with Darius, a Mede, taking over that kingdom. Uh, but then the, the Mede portion of that kingdom was shorter and, by the way, weaker than Cyrus and the subsequent kings, who were Persians. And so you have this one kingdom, this Medo Persian kingdom, but it starts out with one side, the Med portion, being weaker and the Persian side being stronger. This is represented later in some chapters we probably won't look at in Daniel as a goat that had two horns, one larger and one smaller. Horns signified power, and so the mead portion of this goat, this horn that was on one side, was weaker than this bigger horn on the other. That's the picture we get here, which is why the likeness of a bear, this this kingdom that is strong and vicious, is raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. Just imagery of the, the ability of this kingdom to consume other kingdoms, And thus they said, arise, devour much meat. And that's exactly what the Medo-Persian army did. But for Daniel, as he's having this dream, that's a kingdom that is not yet. He's living in the Roman kingdom, or the the Babylonian kingdom. And and all this is explained further later in the chapter. And we're only going to get to verse 14 today, so you guys can look at that later. And we've got to move fast if we're going to be done here on time. So um, we have the Medo-Persian. After this... After the Medo-Persian kingdom, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one. Like a leopard, fast, swift, strong, would be the imagery here, which had it on its back four wings of a bird. There is no kingdom in the world that has been conquered with a speed and, 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 and in such a short time as the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. The speed and swiftness at which he swept through the world and conquered it was remarkable. And so it's a a leopard, it's strong, but it's got wings, it moves uh, very quickly. And this beast also had four heads. Interestingly, Alexander the Great... Upon his young death, he had conquered the whole world by the time he was in his 30s, at least the known world at that time. And so in this incredibly swift move, he conquers the whole world, and very unexpectedly and at a very young age, he dies. And his kingdom upon his death was divided up between his four top generals. And so this this leopard that is swift and moves quickly with a beast has four heads. And after, after uh, Alexander the Great dies, these four heads kind of take over, and there's more kingdoms, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, verse 7, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong. Whatever this beast is, Daniel has no, uh, no animal on earth to liken it to. This is scary beyond what he can understand. And it had large iron teeth, iron already being a description used of Rome in Daniel chapter 2. And so this is the Roman Empire. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten This is where Daniel is no longer able to separate out the future from the past. So I'm going to give you an assignment. You get homework this week, and that is to read Revelation 13. And you can read about this future, not yet, Roman empire that will be divided up among ten kings, and so there's, there's uh, this bit of the Rome that already was, that fell in uh, 476 A.D., and the Rome that will yet to be in Revelation 13, this revised Roman Empire. And while I was contemplating the horns, again, horns being symbolic of strength, while I was contemplating these horns, behold, uh, another horn, a little one came up among them. This, By the way, this imagery is is used identically in Revelation 13. This little horn is the Antichrist. this, This ruler who will come, who will dominate the world, who will persecute the church and kill Christians, who will at some point himself be possessed by Satan, who will try and raise up an army to defeat God. I love all of this, which might sound weird, but all of that which sounds terrifying to us from God's perspective... It's just a little horn. This little horn comes up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. You can read about that in Revelation 13 as well. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like that of a man. So this is a person. This is a ruler. This is the Antichrist. And mouth speaking great boasts. Inherently, boasts are untrue. This little horn thinks he's big stuff. But from God's perspective, he's not. This is, uh, at the time Daniel has this, this is the future. And this must have been confusing and terrifying to Daniel. And it's probably a little confusing and terrifying to us. Because the worst of what was described there, and what what we see is yet to come in the book of Revelation, it's still ahead of us. The, the, The church slaughtered like it's never been slaughtered before is still ahead of us. The rule and reign of the Antichrist on earth who will try and eradicate the fame and renown of God in the world is still before us. Massive deception in the world is still ahead of us. Logan, how can this possibly be better? Well, let's look at verse 9, because here we're going to see the righteous judge. The righteous judge. I kept looking. Until thrones were set up. If horns are symbolic of power, thrones are symbolic of of rule. And notice a a throne is not set up, but thrones. Whoever this is, who we're about to be presented with in verse 9, doesn't just sit on a throne, he sits on thrones. His rule is massive. It is is much stronger than anyone else. And then we're introduced to who this is. Thrones were set up, plural, and the ancient of days, singular, was seated. The guy who is in charge of everything, Yahweh, the Lord, the ancient of days, he now takes his seat. And we're told two things about him here. We're told first of his attributes and second of his activity. Let's look at those. The Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow. This is uh, symbolic of righteousness. It is a, uh, white garments is a symbol also used in Revelation when God gives somebody righteousness. His garments are, are white like snow, symbolizing that he is righteous, that he always does what is right? Secondly, his hair on his head was like pure wool. The picture, again, is white. The idea here being wisdom. He not only has white clothing, he always does what is right. He has white hair. He always knows the best thing to do. Let me blow your mind for a minute. God doesn't just know the future. He knows all possible futures. If he's omniscient, he doesn't just know what is and what was, he knows every possible outcome should any one decision at any point along the way have been made differently. God doesn't just know what is, he knows all possibilities. Let that bake your noodle for a second. And it is with that knowledge that he always knows what is best. And always does what is right. Now you see what I mean when I say God is never guessing, God is never trying to work things out. It's, it's easy to look to, to think of this from our perspective. Oh, wise people always know the right thing to do. Now multiply that knowledge by in infinity and you have God who who always does what is right and what is best. And his throne was ablaze with fire. This is judgment. We we move now into the activity of what God does. We are out of the attributes, but but we could say he is a judge as well. Fire in the Old Testament is always symbolic and usually in the New Testament is symbolic of judgment. And we see uh, Its wheels were a burning fire. You can see the opening chapters of Ezekiel for this throne of God with wheels. And and really what we see as as the imagery in the beginning of Ezekiel is hard to understand is just this gigantic judgment machine of God that's building up steam. And, And so we see that he is the judge and that, that his throne is ablaze with fire and it's this, this judgment machine is starting to turn and a river of fire is flowing and coming out from before him. This, this judgment he pours out. I wonder, I wonder if this was encouragement to Daniel. God always does what's best. God always knows what's best. And even when I don't understand what's best and things don't seem best from my perspective, God's going to judge it all. I wonder if this helped him as he thought about, how do, I, how do I serve well in a wicked world? How do I serve wicked kings? Because what we see here is that the Ancient of Days is going to settle all accounts. He's going to make all things right. He didn't get your circumstances wrong. He didn't get the last election wrong, or any election for that matter, or any kingdom conquering. We have to be very careful here, though, because if we, it, it, we, we might be very tempted to say, oh, I don't have to worry about what's going on out there because God's going to judge it all. And to do that, even though it was true and is true, might, might lead us to a place where we forget that we deserve the same judgment. And if the death and resurrection of Christ, if the mercy of God triumphs over judgment, as we're told in James, for me, then it can triumph over judgment for anyone. We must be very careful not to to be tempted to think that, that we deserve his grace while everybody else deserves his judgment. And notice, not only does he judge, but he receives worship. Whatever it means that thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads were attending and standing before him, we don't know exactly what this number means, but what we do know is it's the largest number you could represent in ancient languages. This is as big as it gets. There is no number larger. It's like a Googleplex. You can Google that later, which is spelled differently than Google Plex, but like this is a huge number of people who are standing before him, attending to him, and he receives worship, And, and then the court sits, and judgment is about to take place, and books were opened. This is a reference to the judgment of the wicked, because we see in Revelation that for the redeemed, there is one book, but for the wicked, there are many books. And it might be easy to be tempted to think, well, the reason for this is because there are so many people who aren't saved and they're going to be judged, and there are so few people who are saved and won't be judged, and if you think that, like I used to, I think you're wrong, as I was wrong. I don't think the difference between the books of the saved or the unsaved presented to us is supposed to be a number of how many people are saved versus unsaved. There might be other passages that refer to that. What's the fundamental difference between the, the books of judgment for the unrighteous and the Lamb's book of life for those who, are, who, have, who will receive grace, who will not undergo that same judgment? I think it's what comes after their names. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, "'God made alive together with him, "'having forgiven us all our trespasses "'by canceling the record of death "'that stood against us with its legal demands. "'This he set aside, nailing it to the cross.' The record of debt that stood against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In modern parlance, God cut and pasted everything that came after your name out of that book and copied it onto Christ at the cross. And then hit the delete button when Jesus died. Why is there only one book? Because for those of us who have trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, when we stand before God and he opens the book to our name and he says, let's see what there is to account for, nothing, righteous, white clothing, welcome. Why are there books for everybody else? Because this record of debt has not been cut and pasted. It's not been canceled. It's not been dealt with. There is only one way to have your sin erased, and it is by trusting in Jesus Christ to take care of it. Have you? Have you trusted in him to take care of that? Then in verse 11, we come back to this pesky little horn who makes great boasts, but, like all the rest of the kingdoms, is destroyed. Look at the second half of verse 11. I kept looking until the beast was killed, There's his future. He's going to die. And his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, these kingdoms, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. However long God wanted the beasts to live, they lived for, and when he was done with them, they died. That's what God does with kingdoms. He rises them up and he brings them low. But we don't just see the righteous judge. We thirdly here see the ruling savior. Verses 13 and 14. Look with me at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is Jesus. The ancient of days has taken his seat uh, on his judgment throne, and Jesus is standing before him. Who is worthy to approach this throne? It is Jesus, it is the Son of Man, and he is coming to the Ancient of Days. But look at the direction that he's coming from. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. This should draw our attention to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection, and now he is ascending to heaven. He is ascending back to the ancient of days. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 says, So when they had come together, that is the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What kingdom? What kingdom is going to be set up, Lord? Are you going to restore us and our kingdom? They don't get the church yet. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Which direction is he going? Up. He's lifted up. And he's taken out of their sight on a cloud. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. And so in Acts chapter one, after Jesus has died and has been resurrected and is ascending to the father, that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. He is coming up To the ancient of days. When is he coming up to the ancient of days? After having been made low. After having become like one of us. After humbling himself to a human existence, and being obedient to the law, even to death on a cross, and then being resurrected, and then returning to God, he goes back up to the ancient of days, but what does he go back up for? That is a great question, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at verse 13, and he came near to him, and to him was given dominion. That is power, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I don't know how to encourage you any more than this. Jesus lived, he died, he ascended, he took his kingdom, he rules and reigns in all ways perfectly now. The news just doesn't get any better than this. Do I understand why the Vladimir Putins of the world are put in charge? I don't. But he does. And one of the things I've said often in my house to my children is understanding is not a requisite for obedience. I don't have to understand in order to be required to obey. I don't have to understand in order to believe and trust that he's good. Romans 13 is clear that whoever's in charge is in charge because Jesus is ultimately charged and put them there. So whatever's going on, we don't have to wonder who's reigning and who's ruling. Jesus is. We don't know the future. He does. We know enough to keep us encouraged in the present. Because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but his kingdom is always in control and Jesus wins. That's the sum of the matter. You know what I do understand, though? I do understand what task was given to us in this kingdom. Because that's in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 as well. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's two things I know uh, from Acts chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 7. Number one, you can't know when Jesus is coming back. Don't even try. Matthew 24 and 25 confirms it. As soon as you think you have the day figured out, you can just be guaranteed of one thing. It's not that day. Just leave it alone. Don't worry about it. All of this isn't given to us so that we might figure out that day. All of this is given to us so that we might live today, like he's coming back today. All this apocalypse is for today. So the one thing I'm sure of is we don't know when that day is gonna be. And number two, You have a task. Regardless of cultural climate, you have a task. Regardless of who is king or president, you have a task. Until Christ does return, you have a task. And it's not to judge the world, that's already been taken care of. It's not to hide, because eternal safety has already been provided. It's it's not to criticize, because the only difference between us and the world is that we're forgiven. The task is to tell. The task is to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What we do as a church when we gather matters, but equally as important to what we do when we gather is what we do when we scatter. We go out and we live in such a way that says, Your name, even your renown, O Lord, is the desire of our hearts. Isaiah 26.8 Your name, even your fame, O Lord, is the desire of our hearts. Do you leave this place and live in the world for six days like you care whether your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends see the glory of God in the world? Or are you simply content to let them go about believing their God in the world instead of seeing God in the world so that one day they'll just sit under his judgment and incur his wrath? We have a task. We have a task. We've got to get about our task. Our, our task is to proclaim Jesus. And so, Pastor Thad here shortly is going to tell us some steps to Easter. Hopefully, you have picked and prayed who you uh, want to invite at Easter. Now it's time to reach out and relate to those people. But wherever you are and whatever you do, He is in charge. And he is in charge of the world, and he is in charge of the church. and We have a task, and that is to proclaim his glory until he comes. Lord, may we be about the task that you have given us. May we find great comfort in your control over all things. And may, be, may, may we give willing obedience to proclaiming you in the world until you come. May we be found about the task that you have given us when you return. And Lord, wh- whether you come today or whether you tarry for another 2,000 years, may, may this church be here found proclaiming your glory in the world until that day. For our good, for your glory, and for the salvation of the lost, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.